Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. As a father, I am definitely not perfect. I'm definitely not perfect. Where all of my imperfections as an earthly father fall short, God's perfection as our heavenly father succeeds in. Where all of my imperfections as an earthly father fall short, God's perfection as our heavenly father succeeds in. In other words, God is the better father. He is the perfect father, the greater father. He is the pinnacle of fatherhood. And this is going to be an important concept to grasp this morning because today we are talking about one of the essential facets of the gospel called Adoption. 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 And the reason it's called an essential fa- a facet is because the gospel um, is really almost like a diamond, right? Where it has different sides and, and, different, and different views, but still it's the gospel. And the reason I said essential is because we are in the middle of a series called Essentials. Essentials. And really, there's two main objectives to this series, why uh, we are wanting to teach on this series. And one is really to know the gospel, and the second is to remember it. So one is really to know it, to know the beauty of the gospel, the, the, the transcendent beauty to be able to articulate it, to be able to uh, be able to be in awe of what the gospel is in all of its robust truth. And then the second is to remember the gospel. We are faithful forgetters. And we need to constantly remember the gospel and speak that gospel truth every day into all sorts of situations. And so these are the essentials of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your spirit is the great excavator as we mine your text this morning. I pray that the power of your word will penetrate even into the recesses of our mind and transform the areas that possibly have been suppressed, motives that have possibly subconsciously been formed, and that they will be transformed by the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen Amen. and amen. I remember the day that I died. In fact, it was the same day that I was adopted. I remember the day that I died, and it was the same day that I was adopted. What if I were to tell you that almost every person in this room can say the same thing? More on that in a minute. As we unpack this gospel concept of adoption... I just kind of want to go through three areas. The first is the adopted child. The second is the orphan slave. And the third is the transformed table. So the adopted child, the transformed slave, and the, I mean, the orphan slave and the transformed table. 
Now, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, so if you want to turn there, you can, but just park there for a moment, because in order to really comprehend what Paul is trying to let us know, it's going to be important that we have some context, because he is writing this letter. The book of Ephesians is actually a letter. It's a letter to the church in Ephesus. So it's going to be important for us to understand who, what Ephesus is all about, for us to really understand the passage. So before we read it, just a few things. Number one is Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was the largest uh, space for uh, slave trade. It was the banking capital of the Roman Empire. And obviously it was occupied by Rome. Now what's interesting is in the book of Ephesians, which is in the New Testament, right? Um, and then we have the Old Testament. Well, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is this space, right, uh, where, where we don't have any documentation. Nothing seemed to happen in the sense of a word from the Lord. But there was actually a lot going on on earth between those spaces. And so just so you know where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament sort of begins is uh, th there was changes that were taking place. And one of them happened to be from this guy that I think we probably all know named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. All heard of him? Okay, so he conquered what was called most of the known world, right? But, but he didn't want to just conquer these places. He wanted to Hellenize them, Hellenize them. And, and what that means is this, is, is that he wanted to take uh, the, the Greek culture and he wanted to make sure that all of these places that he conquered, that the Greek culture, Greek philosophy, Greek worldview would, would then be placed onto these various spaces and people groups and that these people groups would assimilate into the Greek culture. And so, and so he was really important to him was to understand the Greek lifestyle, Greek longings, and Greek language. Lifestyle, longings, and language. So he wanted them to, to, to know their, their, their gods and have their morality and have their understanding and their worldview. So how he did this practically was a few things. As one, he built temples. So he built temples everywhere to all sorts of gods. Number two is he built arenas. And in these arenas, massive fights and battles would take place, right? Number three is he built theaters. And this was important because when different entertainment and, and plays were going on, it would then bring a certain message to the culture for people to begin to assimilate to. And, and then finally, he built gymnasi gymnasiums, gymnasiums. And what's interesting about the, these gymnasiums is they would go and they would work out and they would do their uh, things to kind of get their body healthy, but they would do all of this in the nude. And, and the reason why is because in Greek philosophy, what was very important to them was this idea of the human body. The human body was worshipped. That's why in many Greek statues, they're, they're made in the nude. It's because it was about the physical body. It was, there, there was something about the human body that was central to their philosophy, to their idea. And so it was, and not just the physical body, but there was also glory in uh, intellect. There was glory in human achievement. Okay? So... Physical beauty, intellect, human achievement, all of this was very important. 
And so what Hellenism did was it taught you that your value and your worth came from, again, physical beauty, your strength, your intellect, your capacity to achieve. It was all about the the human perfection. Now, you can imagine what that will eventually do to the psyche of any culture, right? Eventually, they're going to feel the pressure to perform, the pressure to, to rule, the pressure to achieve. And anything that did not measure up to their standard would be marginalized, would be discarded, or even flat out destroyed. So so this has huge ramifications for the culture and how one lives. So when Paul went to write out this letter, right, the the side effects of Hellenism was very much alive and part of the fabric of society. In fact, one very common practice that was happening in Paul's day when Paul wrote this letter was something called the exposing of infants. And, And this meant that parents had the legal right That if their child was born and that child did not meet their standards of perfection, they had the legal right to take their child outside of the city walls and they would bring them. There was, uh, Ephesus was by this hill. They would bring them, put them out on this hill and they would just leave them there to die. They'd leave them in the wilderness and they would just be there to die. They had the legal right to do that. Okay. And that's what, it's very common. It's very common. Now, I'm not just making this up, so just to prove that I'm not, there, there's a few people that I want to quote uh, from an, uh, antiquity. First uh, is a philosopher named Seneca, and he was writing down what uh, the culture was like in his day. And he said this, mad dogs we knocked on the head. The fierce and savage ox we slay. Sickly sheep we put, to, we put the knife to keep them from infecting the flock. Unnatural progeny we destroyed. We drown even children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. All right. Next we have good old famous Socrates, right? Look what Socrates says. He says this, but the children of inferior parents or any child of the other that is born defective, they'll hide in a secret and unknown place as is appropriate if indeed the guardian breed is to remain pure. Next is this guy, his name's Soranus, and he was actually a, a, gyne- a famous gynecologist, renowned gynecologist in ancient Rome. And he says this, the infant will be discarded by the fact when you put it on the earth and it does not immediately cry with proper vigor, is suspect of behaving in some unfavorable condition or not perfect in all of its parts, members, and senses. Okay? And so they had the legal right to what they would call expose any baby that did not meet what they deemed to be a perfect human being. And so they would go and take them and place them on these hills. Now, sometimes uh, people would come and they would go and they would take these babies and they would keep them to raise them as slaves. Because again, remember, this is, is a huge slave trade economy, right? So they could just get these quote unquote free humans and raise them to be slaves. Now, when they did that, that is, they, they weren't adopting that baby. They were taking that baby and putting that baby into slavery. In other words... If these babies were not completely blameless in their sight, they were left to die 
or become slaves. I'm going to say this again. If these babies were not completely blameless in their sight, they were left to die or become slaves. Now, with that as the background in our mind, let's read what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3. It says this. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For watch this, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and what? Blameless in his sight. Do you see that? Blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for what? For slavery? Oh, it doesn't say that. For performance? Oh, it doesn't say that. For his entertainment? Oh, it doesn't say that. For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Wow. Number one, the adopted child. Now, this particular uh, doctrine of Christianity adoption should burst out on our culture like a, 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 a firework, if you will. When Paul wrote this, and they were in the first century church, they did not read this and begin to say, oh, well, let's begin to debate you know, th- the theological soteriology of Calvinism and, Ar- and Arminianism, right? They, they, they weren't, the first thing that jumped out of them was not, you know, should we debate if, if did God, you know, uh, uh, predestine every single person and now everyone has the free will to reject that? Or, or did God predestine certain people and those people don't have the free will to reject? They did not start. That. What jumped out at them was this, that they could call God their father. That was the first thing, that they could call God their father. No other religion makes this claim. Christianity says through Christ, your creator can become your father. That there, and that your creator can become your perfect father. A father that does not die. A father who loves with absolute wisdom and absolute consistency and absolute love and absolute compassion. That those who are in Christ have been adopted. Now there are some noteworthy implications that I think we should bring out. Number one, some of you may have noticed immediately that, the, that, that Paul says God adopts you for sonship. And some of you in this room probably thought, well, that's great, but what about me? What about the daughters? <laughs> See, Paul was being very subversive. In the Roman world, women were oppressed. That they weren't allowed to be heirs. The men had the inheritance and they could pass it to other men. And so sonship meant power, authority, and inheritance. When Paul takes that word, that he had a very specific legal meaning in the Roman world. When he takes that word and turns it around and puts it on all Christians, male and female, he's being very radical. He's saying all of you 
that are in Christ are now in this sonship. Do you see that? He's saying when it comes to God, God in this sense, in this particular sense, does not recognize the gender differences of, well, males can be saved, but females can't. No, all can be saved. You see? He's being radical. He's being radical. So when he calls everybody sons, listen, women, you should not be any more upset than when he calls all male Christians his bride. Right? That's a little weird, right? Right? Some of you men, if we're worshiping, we're like, we're your bride. You're like, wait a minute. There is something here that is powerful that Paul is trying to articulate. Second implication is this. The word adoption shows us that though we are not children of God by nature... We are still children of God through Christ. Amen. Now, we're not children of God. through. In other words, it's not natural to be a child of God. Now, if you mean by child of God, well, all humanity was formed in God's image. Okay, yes. But if we're talking about relationally, relationally to relate to God as a father, not every single human being can say that they are a child of God. That's not what the gospel teaches. Because it's not just natural to be God's child in a relational sense. Something has to happen. Something has to happen. I think one of the best ways that we find in scripture that this is illustrated is through uh, the prodigal son. And so Jesus tells this story parable of this prodigal son and basically there's a older brother and there's a younger brother and there's a father and the younger brother says listen I want my part of the inheritance and I want to go and do with it whatever I want and so what that means is that everything the father owned was going to be split between the older brother and the younger brother so if the father owned 500 sheep then it would be split 250 250 if the uh, if the father owned 1000 cattle it would be uh, split 500 five. the older brother would get 500 cattle the younger brother would get 500 cattle if there was you know 12 forks you know well the older brother would get 10 forks and the younger brother would get 10 forks everything was split and so the younger, younger brother took all of it, took all the sheep, took all the cattle, uh, it all, took his half and went and lived his life and did what he want as though his father did not exist. He splurged it, ended up ruining his life, completely became a slave to the things that they thought would free him and realized that he's not better off, he's worse and so he wants to go back to the father and say, listen, at least let me be a servant in your house. Somehow maybe I can earn, maybe I can earn this relationship back. And he goes to the father and the father sees him from afar off and the father runs to him and the father gives him a robe and gives him a ring and, and, and begins to throw him a huge party, right? The, the father says, listen, you can't earn this love. It's given, and so he does all of this, but while he's doing it, the older brother's getting upset because it's at the older brother's expense. Because wait a minute, wait a minute, that's my ring you just put on his finger. Wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, he already got his robe, that's my robe you're putting on him. No, no, wait, 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 he already got his beef, he got his cattle, 
So that, that, that cattle that you're slaughtering right now for this big old barbecue, that's my cattle. The older brother is getting upset because in order for the younger brother to come and be a part of the family, it has to be at the cost of the older brother. Do, do, do you see this? Well, this is exactly what the gospel says. This is the dynamic of the adoption. You see, in order for you to come and be a part of the family of God, it is that cost to someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ. It is at his cost that we are adopted. When Jesus died on the cross, when he poured himself out, when he opened his mouth while he was being slaughtered, he was doing it so you could be adopted because adoption does not just come naturally. It's a choice. The father chose. The son chose. Adoption takes a legal activity. And that's the marvelous claim of Christianity that no other worldview, no other religious system promises. Right? Oh, thank you. Mm, feel like preaching. Okay. <laughs> right? Think about it. It's so crazy. Third implication is this. What's interesting about Paul using that word adoption is in Hebrew culture, this really wasn't a thing. But in Greek culture, in Roman culture, it very much was. But it was different than what we think about. See, when we think about adoption, we think of like adopting a child, an infant. In fact, our culture says the younger the better, right? And when a couple goes for adoption, most couples are wanting like, you know, newborns or something. Right? Younger the better. But in Roman culture, actually what would happen is when adoption happened, it was a very public thing. It was a very legal process. But it usually happened with adults. And this is usually what would happen is there would be a father who uh, was, uh, had no children or had no heirs left. Maybe his children died. Whatever situation, there were no heirs. And so he would need to find somebody and he would adopt them as his son. So that way he could carry on the name and he can inherit everything the father owns. You see? And so what this does is immediately several things begin to happen legally. Legally, number one, all of the new son's obligations are canceled. Anything that the new son owed, any debt that the new son had, any problem that the new son faced would be canceled. Any criminal offense, canceled. Do you see that? All legal obligations are gone. In other words, that son no longer owed anybody anything. Secondly, the son becomes as wealthy as the father does. So immediately he gets the father's name and he immediately becomes the heir of everything the father has. So adoption isn't necessarily a, isn't necessarily a change of nature, but it's a change of status. It's a change of status. It was a legal change, and it was the highest thing possible. In fact, this is the highest thing that God could do for you. Theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. When Paul talks about God adopting you, there are many other things God gives you in Christ, but this is the highest. 
Now, see, you have to see it as the highest. You have to see this as the, the, the biggest, the greatest thing that God could ever do for you. Sure, there's forgiveness of sins, and that's phenomenal, right? There's penal substitutionary atonement, and that's phenomenal. There's justification by faith, and that's phenomenal. There's righteousness, and that's phenomenal, But as we progress in the understanding of the gospel, this is what many theologians agree is the highest thing that God could do. Right? Because it'd be one thing for the judge to look at you and say, you know what? You're guilty. You know, let's just say you're a serial killer. Guilty. Right? Let's just say, right? If you are a serial killer in here today, there's room for you at the cross. Praise Jesus. Just don't come over here in this row where my babies are, because otherwise you'll see Jesus real fast. <laughs> um. <laughs> so if there's a judge, right, and the judge says, listen, Sarah, you know, you're, you're guilty, you know. And so in order to be a just judge, right, there has to be a penalty. There has to be a penalty. And so, you know, you go, judge, guilty, bam, and the judge says, well, wait a second. Um, before you go and face capital punishment or whatever the sentence would be, you know, before you go and face death, let me get my son and he's actually going to take your place, right? That would be, I mean, just think about it. If you really saw that in real life, you would be absolutely shocked. And so now the criminal is unhandcuffed and the innocent son is now handcuffed. Do you see what's happening? Now the criminal son can go free. While, while, uh, the criminal can go free while, while the judge's son now has to go in imprisonment and face capital punishment. Now that's amazing. If that, if that were to actually happen, astonishing, right? You'd probably be thinking, man, this judge hates his son. <laughs> but if the son was not doing it against his own, in fact, if the son said, you know what? I'll do it. Hey, dad, I- I'll do it. I'll take his place. Now, that's amazing. That's amazing. But, but see, God takes it a little bit further, right? Because he doesn't just tell the criminal, okay, you're free to go. But, but, but then he does this thing, and he gives, he, he gives his son's record, right? His, his, his clean record, and he now places that clean record on to you as the criminal, and he gives you as the criminal your criminal record and places it onto his son, So now when you walk out those doors, now when the judge sees you and they look up your record, it's clean. clean. In fact, it's not just clean, but you have a whole new identity. Now that would be amazing as well. But see, it takes another step further. What the gospel says is that he doesn't just say you're forgiven. He doesn't just say there's a a substitutionary atonement that happened and my son's going to die in your name so you can live in his. He doesn't just say that, but he says this. Imagine if the judge were to say, before you leave this room, also give me some papers, give me the documents. I want to adopt you. That's exactly what the gospel says happens. Do you see that? Theologian D.A. Carson says this, the highest possible thing God could do for anyone would be to adopt. Do you understand why? Do you see that? It's because this, we as uh, human earthly parents aren't perfect. But when when someone goes to adopt somebody, they will try their best to love them 
the same as they would their biological child, yeah. right? That's what they try to do. It's not, it's not always perfect, but we, that's what we try to do. We try to love them the same, right, as our biological child. When Jesus says in John 17, Father, you have loved them even as you have loved me. When Jesus Christ says that, you see that? He's letting us know of our adoption in God. And that God loves us as much as he loves his son. That God the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus Christ the son. Think about it. That's crazy. That is so crazy. With just as much power, with just as much consistency, with just as much joy. Imagine it. Imagine it. Now see, we don't believe it. We don't believe it. Of course we don't. Otherwise we'd be crying out and running around and fake eyelashes are falling off. We'd be screaming and hollering and on the ground and wailing out. Because of course not. So I mean, we're sitting there comfortable like, amen. But really, if we believed it, right? Think about it. We'd be utterly destroyed. Right? Think about it. Imagine the welcome the father gives to his son when his son just died on the cross and, and came back. You know, he'd been tortured and he accomplished this great work. Imagine how God the father welcomed Jesus Christ. Imagine how wide his arms were and imagine what that must have felt like. Imagine the power and the tidal wave of love that must have surged out of the father's heart into the center of the son. You have to imagine it. Why? Why am I telling you imagine it? Because adoption means that God loves you no less than that. He loves you no less than that. Wow. So I have a question for you. If this is true, if you are an adopted child, why do you behave like an orphan slave? If you're an adopted child, why do you behave like an orphan slave? Number two, the orphan slave. See, what's interesting about this is when Paul's writing this, and not just in this letter, but in Romans, in Galatians, especially Galatians, read Galatians chapter four, it's amazing. But when Paul's writing this, I think he's assuming that all of us have seen Downton Abbey. That's what he's assuming. We've all watched Downton Abbey, right? I think that's what he's thinking. And, here, and here's why. Because when you look at this show, what's interesting about it is that you have this huge mansion and, and there's this mansion and, and there's a lord of this mansion. And in this mansion, there's a lord and there's children and there's servants, right? All living within this mansion, right? And what's fascinating is, is that they all sort of have their jobs, but, but it's all done differently, See, there's a difference between how the servant works and how the son or daughter works. There's a difference between how the slave works or the son and daughter work. The servant knows that, listen, if I do not work hard, if I do not perform, if I do not do my best, then there is a chance that I will be kicked out. There is a chance that I will be disassociated. There is a chance that I will, leave, I will be asked to leave this place, place of security, place of stability. There's a chance. So I got to work really, really hard. I got to work hard. I got to make sure nobody else stops me. I might even have to throw some people under the bus. I have to do whatever it is because I need to make sure that my place is secure. And if I make a mistake, I have to hide it. I have to cover it. I can't let anybody know because it will utterly destroy my life. That is what the servant thinks. 
But see, the child of the Lord of the manor doesn't think that. Doesn't think that. See, there's a difference between looking at God as your employer and looking at God as your father. And every moment of every day, we wrestle between these two identities, these two mentalities, these two grids, these two lenses, these two paradigms for how we live and think and react. The slave you and the free you, the orphan you and the adopted you. And there's a constant battle between the two. And many of you do not live out of the reality that you have been given a new identity, that you have been adopted. No, many of you, many of us, in fact, probably all of us, we function out of this orphan slave mentality. But before the Bible tells you what to do, it always tells you who you are. Before the Bible tells you what to do, it first tells you who you are. I'm going to throw up a picture here of... That's uh, important to me. And so the picture that you see on, uh, what is that, your left? Uh, No, your right. That little guy in the bottom with the play phone, that's me. And that's my my biological mom and dad. Uh, Now they've passed. And and then the, the couple you see... Uh, next to them are my foster parents, my foster mom and dad. And a couple years ago, my foster mom passed away, and just a few months ago, my foster dad passed away. Um, Now, what's interesting is the transition that happens between going from one place to another. Just so you know, growing up, my parents got divorced when I was three, and my mom, which I hesitate to say this because my daughters are in the room. Um, My mom addicted to heroin and was a prostitute for most of my life. Uh, And so my dad stayed. He was one of the good ones. (laughs) He stayed and he raised me and my sister. And and so it was really fascinating. And at a certain age, I decided, because, you know, when you're young, you don't appreciate everything. So at a certain age, I decided I'm actually going to run away from home and I want to go live with my mom. And uh, I quickly discovered that that was a really rough lifestyle. We, uh, she lived on the streets, um, sometimes in hotel rooms. And, uh, you know, food was always kind of a third or fourth option in that reality. There was other things that took place. Um, and so then obviously wasn't there for that long, decided to go back to my father. Um, And then when he died, then my sister and I were separated. We were put in two different foster homes, and I went to go live with Chuck and Linda. And what's interesting about uh, the foster home situation is that you get many kids from many backgrounds that come in that have been through all sorts of difficult trauma. And what's, and what's crazy is when you go in the foster system, you have this option to adopt. But the transition from going to an unhealthy family to a healthy family 
can be difficult when you've been through that kind of trauma. And for many foster kids, they would experience food insecurity, right? They weren't sure where their next meal was going to come from. Um, and so because of that, you begin to develop the, this thing called a scarcity mindset, even at the age of three and four. And so when that mindset comes in, it comes with the idea of like, well, I don't know who's going to take care of me. I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. I don't know who's going to get that meal. So I have to gather. I have to collect. I have to hold on to. And so there's many times when, when, when foster kids would come in and, and, and you would see them begin to like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, at, at the dinner table, they'd take some food and shove it in their pocket. They'd take some mashed potatoes and put it in the side here. And they would go and they'd, they'd run upstairs and they'd go and they'd put it right here and they'd put it under their bed and hide it. Because they didn't know. They didn't know that they were in a place where there would always be food for them. They didn't know that. Because when you bring that scarcity mentality into a healthy family, where, where, where the family's always going to provide a meal, it becomes a very different transition. And it takes years for that mentality to get out of you. Years for that mentality to get out of you. Now, what's crazy is we've probably all heard this if you've been in church long enough is, you know, when, when God took the, 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 his children out of Egypt, and, and there's a saying that goes, listen, it's one thing to take his children out of Egypt, and it's another thing when he's tried to take Egypt out of his children. There, 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 there's this idea, this, this realistic reality that we are now adopted. If you are in Christ, you are adopted by God. He is your heavenly father at the price of Jesus Christ. That's the reality. But the orphan mentality takes a while to get out of you, you see? And that's why some of you live in anxiety and, and fear because you're like, I don't know if God will provide the next thing for me. I don't know if he'll really keep his promises for my future. I don't know if I'm secure in him. I don't know if I can trust him. And so we have this mindset. That's why we get worried. That's why you have anxiety. What you're really saying is, God, I don't know if I can trust you. You, you see, when that happens, that's the orphan you, not the adopted you. That's the slave you, not the free you. Do you see that? When you say, well, maybe I've done something wrong and I'm not good enough, so, so I need to perform. And, uh, uh, that, that, again, that's the slave you. That's the orphan you. That's not the adopted you. Or when you look at your bank account or your relationships or your status at work to tell you your worth, that's, that, what that is is that's the orphan you. That's not the adopted you. When, when you look at your past and that thing that happened to you that one time, or maybe you were the one that did the thing to the person that one time, you know, and, and you begin to, 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 to let that shame riddle you and riddle you and riddle you and you live with the false reality you see that you feel like I'm never going to measure up I'm never going to be enough that's the false orphan you not the adopted you you need to understand that that God loves you you're never going to earn enough but you don't have to he earned it for you you're never going to achieve enough, but you don't have to. It's already been done for you. We're never going to be worthy enough, but we don't have to because he's given us his righteousness. Do you see that? Do you find yourself emotionally going up and down depending on whether you're living up to your standards or what circumstances are happening to you? If so, that is the orphan you. That's not the adopted you. Do you, do you find yourself that you get big, a really big head when things go well and then you get really discouraged when things are going poorly? That's the orphan you. That's not the adopted you. You see? See, the orphan slave is emotionally up and down. 
especially over their performance. The adopted child is on an even keel. See, orphan slaves are critical, judgmental, and gossipy. Do you know why? Because, because, you see, an orphan slave is someone who doesn't feel loved unless they feel superior. And, and, and so gossip makes you feel superior to people. That's why you like it, you see. That's why you find gossip great. You find gossip irresistible to listen to, irresistible to pass along. It's because you need to believe that you're better than the people that you're talking about. If you're critical, if you're, if you're overly critical, that's the orphan you, not the adopted you. If you're a judge, judgmental, if you're very quick to jump on somebody, or, or, or if, you, if, you, if you have to be in control of people, in control of your environment, you see what I'm saying? Because you don't want anything to go wrong. You don't want to reflect on you. It's because you have the orphan slave mentality, you see. It's a mentality that says, if anything goes wrong, if anything goes wrong, then I can't be loved. But a son and daughter of the king is one who has an infirming spirit, is one who's a good listener, who doesn't gossip, someone who's extremely good at giving compliments and making other people feel better because they know that, it, that their sonship, that their daughtership is not based on their performance, but on what Christ did for them. See, an orphan slave is someone who who can't take criticism. You can't take criticism. You get defensive really quick. That's the orphan you. That's not the adopted you. That's the slave you. That's not the free you. You see what I'm saying? Quick to want to clap back. Quick to want to say something. Quick to, you know what I mean? Oh, they didn't give me extra pickles in my cheeseburgers. I'm going to go back down. I'm going to ask for the manager. I'm going to tell them that this is not the day. Don't, you know what I'm saying? Right? Think about it. Think about it. What are we doing when we're judging other people on their looks and, and what they can bring to the table? It's just the gymnasium all over again. And everybody there just judging each other here in the Roman, in the Roman world of this gymnasium where everybody has to lay bare and live up to something. You know? That's why Jesus hates gyms. I never see Jesus on no meal plan. In fact, I see him doubling the carbs. Thank you, Jesus. Multiplying that bread in Jesus' name. I serve a carb-loving God. Hallelujah. A son and a daughter, they're not defensive. They don't immediately jump down your throat with lots of excuses and try to, try to, try to over-explain when you criticize, but instead repent with joy. If your life is all about serving your wants and your needs, that's the, that, that's the orphan slave you. You see what I'm saying? I don't mind serving at church as long as it's convenient. Right? Or I'm down to be in a friendship or I'm down to be in this marriage as long as it's serving my needs and putting my dreams and my happiness first. If you're emotionally up and down, if you have anxiety, fear, when you worry, when you're critical, Right? When you always have to be the life of the party, always got to show up, always got to be funny, right? You got to be, you got to be. Because otherwise, if you take time to really think about what's going on, it's devastation. So you're like, I can't think like that. Positive vibes, positive vibes, positive vibes, right? 
If you're judgmental, defensive, controlling, if you can't take criticism, you know why? You're forgetting who you really are. When you're mean and impatient and domineering, you're forgetting who you really are. You're slipping back into the orphan slave that God paid his price to free you out of. Do you not see that? You are called. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are free. You can stand firm knowing that your father always keeps his promises. He'll always be there. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's always going to be by your side cheering you on. And you are there loving him and he's loving you. You see what I'm saying? And he's there to correct you. He's there, he's there to come alongside you and say, no, no, let's not do this. And maybe there's a consequence or two, but that's what a father does, you see. He's always calling you and forming you and fashioning you. Do you not understand who you are in him? When depression comes and, and, and social anxiety comes and, and, and worried about what's the future going to look like and I'm not sure and, 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 and what's this sickness going to do and, and, and how's this money going to work and I don't know if this is really going to work out and you begin to just get panicky or, or, or you begin to make decisions based on false realities that, that aren't even true. All of that is the orphan enslave you, not the free adopted son and daughter that you are in Jesus Christ. Don't you know, he moved heaven and earth to be your father. He moved heaven and earth to be your father. He moved heaven and earth to be your father. He moved heaven and earth to be your father. My dear friends, right now, if you're caught up in the anxiety cycle, if you're desperately afraid because you don't want people to know what you're really thinking, what your real problems are, what your struggles are, what your insecurities are, if you're desperately anxious because you're not attracted to the opposite sex, if you're worried because you're not sure about what this past thing that did to you was going to happen, if, if you're worried about and you're stressed out because you have to kind of keep appearances, if you feel hopeless because you're not sure how your future looks, if you feel despair because you feel your sin is too great or your life is too messy, if you're a Christian and you're in that condition, you're not affirming, and you're overly self-conscious, always psychoanalyzing everything, and you're destroyed by circumstances that come, you know what that is? That's the old slave, the old orphan mentality trying to creep back in. When your sin condemns you, when your fears and your wounds and your broken heart leaves you with feeling like you have nothing left. It's a lie, you see. It's a lie. It's a lie. So we'll, we'll make these passive-aggressive statements and we'll, we'll say things that do things that we can't accept. Why? Why do we keep doing it? Why? because of this it's because of this but you need to know this that when sin wants to take you up on the side of a hill and leave you there to die you need to know that you serve a God that says I'll take their place and he did he went up on a hill called Golgotha he was exposed he died See, he was orphaned so you could be adopted. 
He had the face of his father turn from him so that way the face of the father can turn towards you and call you son and call you daughter. You have been transformed. You've been transformed. And what you need to know is because you are part of the family. If you're in Christ, you're part of the family. And what that means is you're welcome to the family table. That's what it means. You're welcome to the family table. One of the things that I love doing in our family is when me and Becca and our girls get to sit down at the dinner table. We get to talk, we get to joke. Sometimes we'll draw. Sometimes we'll ask hard questions and talk through some navigational things that are happening within culture and with our daughters. It's a family table. It's a place where you can be yourself and you can talk about your fears and lay down your anxieties. It's the family table, you see? And because you have been transformed, then you can come to the transformed table. Point three, the transformed table. See, when you come and you grab the bread and you grab the juice, you know what you're doing? You know what you're proclaiming? That you no longer have to live by fear. That anxiety does not have to motivate you. That the pressure to perform does not have to control you. That your deepest insecurities and deepest worries don't have to keep you up at night but that you can lay them at the table because you are a son and you are a daughter of God. That's what this means. That's what this means. That he has come and the father has opened his arms and says, I want to adopt you. And for many of you, he already has. And you just have to now live out of that reality. You have to live out of that reality. Even for some of you now, when we go and we, in just a few moments, we're about to ask the host to come forward and we're going we're gonna to begin the, the, the segment of communion. And even for some of you, you kind of war inside whether you should do it or whether you should not do it. And yeah, I know I'm saved and I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, but I don't know, but I don't know. That's the orphan you, you see? That's the slave you. Well, I don't know if I've performed good enough and I don't know if I've, no, 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 no. Are you putting your trust in Jesus Christ, not in your works, but in his? Do you see that? This is the time where you can lay your deadly doing down. This is the time where you can get all of your fears and all of your insecurities and all of your questions and all of your worries and, and, and everything that's all of your hurts and every person that's disappointed you, every person that's ever dropped you or left you, every person that you felt abandoned you, every person that broke your heart, every ounce of those things, of those feelings, of those mixed emotions, every time that you've gotten worried because maybe you did the offending, maybe you're the one that messed up and, and you don't know what to do or maybe you're trying to fix it on your own and you're tired of it. You can take all of that, all of it, all of it, and you can lay it down right here at the family table. All of it. You don't have to come up here and juggle. You don't have to perform. You don't have to do a show and dance. You don't have to say, see God, see how holy I'm trying to be and how pure I'm trying to be. No, this is the table when you say I'm broken. God, I can't do it. God, I'm not perfect. God, I need you. I need you now more than I've ever needed you before. I need you now more than I've ever needed you before. That's what the table's for. That's what it's for. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, 
Would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.